Now it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to another edition of Modern Money Donuts. My name's Stephen Hale. I'm an economist with Modern Money Lab and adjunct associate professor at Torrens University here in Adelaide. And I'm joined by my co-host, Gabrielle Bond. Hi, Gabby. Hi, everyone. Hi, um, I'm Gabrielle Bond. I'm an activist and an organiser. I'm with Sustainable Prosperity Action Group. And I'm also um, a director and CEO of Modern Money Lab, where I work with Stephen. And uh, we are really thrilled to be joined today by Professor Matthew Rimmer. Um, Matthew is at the Queensland University of Technology. He's an expert in intellectual property and innovation law. And he's written about some really fascinating areas for example, intellectual property and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that was in the news quite a bit a few years ago. Intellectual property and climate change, such a big issue. Intellectual property and 3D printing, intellectual property and public health, um, that's a huge one with the COVID vaccine and everything that's happening there. Um, I'm, I'm uh, pretty interested in the plain packaging laws for cigarette companies, because I think that's a win where Australia really took the lead. and and uh, of course, uh, Matthew is an expert in the right to repair, which is what we're talking about today. And the right to repair fits into what we talk about here on Modern Money Donuts because um, we, in you know, we need to move towards more of a circular economy and repairing things rather than throwing them away is uh, a huge part of that. Because obviously, you know, when you throw something away, there is no away. You know, it's it's still here with us. So um, repair is a huge, um, uh, a huge campaign that uh, the right to repair is a huge campaign that we need to um, put more energy in, I think. And it's great to have Matthew with us. G'day, everyone. Welcome to be here. <laughs> Thanks very much for coming, Matthew. Um, Stephen, do you want to start? Well, let's start with, because uh, I'm a very simple person, let's start with a, 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 a simple question, which is, what does it mean to have a right to repair anyway? What do those words actually mean? Well, the right to repair is really a uh, focal point for a wide range of campaigns. Uh, some of them kind of stem from consumer law uh, in terms of thinking about the rights of consumers uh, to fix the stuff that they own. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's kind of framed in terms of competition and uh, ensuring that you know monopolies cannot frustrate or prevent um, or obstruct repairs. Sometimes it's framed in terms of intellectual property as a kind of a defense or an exception or an ability to uh, kind of uh, repair a product that is subject to intellectual property without fear of infringement. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also kind of sometimes framed in terms of environmental issues and climate issues as well. So um, often there is a kind of a conceptualization of the right to repair as being kind of part of a larger debate over uh, achieving a healthy environment. Mm. Um, there's a lot of discussion about the right to a healthy environment. Big focus at the moment on the sustainable development goals. Um, mm. So it's kind of considered in those terms. And it's often kind of seen as a silent partner to climate action as well. In terms yeah, of yeah, that's very much how I, I imagine. 
Mm. Uh, but it, so but it's a there are other benefits, aren't there, to, to yeah. giving people the right to repair things that aren't just environmental? Hmm. Yeah, well, there are different motivations in different jurisdictions. So, uh, you know, really the right to repair movement is a global movement, uh, but it's certainly taken on some different cues in different um, localities. So in the European Union, there's been a big focus on eco-design and tackling greenwashing mm -hmm. and um, implementing a repairability index and labelling system. And that regime is very much motivated by environmental concerns. Uh, by contrast, the United States seems to have been framing the debate about the right to repair much more in terms of questions around consumer rights and competition policy. So mm. President Joe Biden, as part of his early executive orders, has vowed to take action on the right to repair. Lena Khan, his new head of the Federal Trade Commission, is saying that she's going to uh, use all her available enforcement abilities and other capacities to achieve that. Uh, Professor Tim Wu, who's advisor to uh, Biden, um, has really been framing it as a uh, one of the tools to stop monopolies forming in technology markets. So do you think in the US is leading in this space? Well, I think the European Union has definitely been a leader in this space, but the Biden administration is certainly now taking decisive action. But I think that was partly as a result of what some of the other presidential campaigners were doing. So uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren was arguing for a right to repair in relation to agricultural machinery, as yeah. was uh, Bernie Sanders, who was also mm. pushing for a more general right to repair. Uh, Biden in some ways wanted to take on some of the best ideas of other campaigns. Uh, and I think I think he's been very kind of concerned about the way in which the growth of mega monopolies in the US economy has been having all sorts of poor flow on effects for mm. all sorts of the different parts of the economy. So it's interesting to see how it's percolated up, but really it's been pushed um, by civil society organisations in the United States, like iFixit, who yeah. do very exciting teardown videos of breaking mm. down uh, iPhones and tablets and mm. uh, other very products cool. to see how to fix yeah. it. Uh, but there's always been a bit of activity from Massachusetts in particular. So the states in the United States have been very busy. Uh, so Massachusetts pushed for a right to repair in relation to automobile cars. Mm -hmm. So state by state, there have been battles over right to repair legislation. And technology developers like John Deere and co have been busy trying to oppose those initiatives. So it becoming a federal issue, I think, is a quite interesting and exciting development. Uh, but there's also a number of congressmen and women who are go pushing forward with their own bills as well to try to spark action in the US Congress. Mm. Uh, so it's interesting in the United States, there's local activity, there's state activity, there's federal activity around the mm. right to repair now. So, so we're talking about car manufacturing. We're not talking about you fixing your own modern car. What we mean is... Uh, is uh, uh, local uh, um, service shops being able to get access to um, 
the necessary information and spare parts and you being able to have your car perhaps serviced by uh, qualified people who don't work for the original manufacturer without voiding warranties, things like that. Yeah, so so initially the debate of the right to repair when I was a student back in the 1990s was very much focused upon cars and fixing mm. cars and independent repairers being able to perform the same sorts of repairs as authorised dealers. Uh, the situation has become more complicated as cars become more sophisticated and mm. IT driven. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's certainly been an impulse for a push um, in the United States for a right to repair, um, but also in Australia that was a, a kind of an early driver of activity. And really Treasury in Australia finally responded to those concerns and set up a scheme for sharing repair information mm -hmm. for motor vehicles. Yeah. And the economist Andrew Lee, who you might have come across, um, who is with the Australian Labor Party and is based in Canberra, he has been a big champion of the right to repair uh, for independent repairers. But, you know, sometimes it's also uh, for those people who like to fix their own cars as well, Stephen. So, you know, Australia is the land of Mad Max. Uh, yep. We're very yep. much into customising cars mm. in one way or another. So mm. there's a big culture of that. And certainly mm. one of the big test cases in intellectual property in Australia has been in relation to spare parts for customising cars um, right. in relation to the industrial designs law and the I'm defense in relation to spare parts was successfully raised in that mm. matter. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Australians are, are a bit nuts with tinkering with their cars. I, I used to live in Canberra, which had a festival called Summer Nats, uh, which yeah. was a festival of uh, customising cars in various different ways and showing them mm -hmm. off to others. Well, like uh, I say, so a man's got to have a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a bit more difficult with the Tesla than it was with an old uh, 1970s Ford Cortina. Well, that, that's a good point. One of the big opponents to the right to repair has been Elon Musk and Tesla. And, you mm -hmm. know, they want to really control all aspects of the experience in relation to Tesla, including mm. in terms of doing repairs, whether, you know, they do software updates or they do repairs within their own um, studios. Which so, is, it's, it's yeah. interesting because Tesla is famous for open sourcing their, um, their, their um, IP in relation to Tesla. So, how does that kind of marry up? Well, Elon Musk is a man of many contradictions. You know, uh -huh. at the same time as he was saying that he was open licensing some of his patents in relation to Tesla, he has also been kind of taking action in relation to trade secrets infringement by others mm -hmm. in relation to Tesla. So uh, I, I think he is very complicated in some ways. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Tesla certainly does want to, in some way, elbow out both independent repairers and authorised dealer repairs to something mm. that they control. So mm. I think that's a really key part of their business model. I mean, yeah. from their perspective, they argue there are safety and security reasons why they want to control 
they repair experience. Yeah. Um, but it, it's certainly kind of emblematic of some of the battles that have played out in relation to the right to repair. Mm. And I guess, you know, as our technologies have expanded over the last few decades in relation to information technology and communications technology and consumer electronics, um, that has raised a whole gamut of other issues in relation to repair. And sometimes they kind of still mix together with vehicles because, you know, the Tesla in some ways is a very IT driven car. Yeah, um, yeah, famously so. So that, that has lots of interesting questions in, in terms of how it operates. Similarly mm -hmm. with agricultural machinery as well. So, you know, John Deere and tractors is a, mm. a big flashpoint for conflict um, in relation yes. to the auto repair. Many farmers um, uh, are very proud to be able to repair their own machinery, their problem solvers. You know, they like to be in control um, and they don't, you know, they don't want to have to leave their machines idle while, while important work goes undone. And maybe in the US or Australia, they're a long way away from yeah. uh, one who could repair. Well, well that, that's been a kind of a really important issue in Australia. I mean, one of the key champions of the right to repair has been the National Party, you know, which yeah. is meant to represent rural and regional communities in Australia. But really, some of the Western Australian um, sections of the National Party have been the ones concerned about the right to repair because mm. they're concerned, you know, when their tractor breaks down, it takes so long to, you know, uh, get it fixed um, mm. so far away. And, you know, mm. Western Australia is so far flung that that's a really mm. significant issue for them. And they, they're really kind of keen to try to reduce costs. And the National Farmers Federation in Australia have been very kind of concerned about that issue of the economics of repair. Mm. And mm. the Australian Competition Commission and the Productivity um, Commission have kind of agreed with those concerns and have said that, you know, there are some uh, anti-competitive uh, tendencies in mm. the agricultural um, repair market at the moment and there does need to be supervision and potentially enforcement to, you know, protect farmers and protect consumers. I'd, I'd love to get a sense of what the barriers are to having more of a repair culture, both from like the company side, but also mm. from the kind of uh, behavioural side? Mm. Well, for, from, a, from a company perspective, um, there are sometimes various tensions involved with dealing with questions of repair. Mm. A good case study might be Apple. Yeah. So Apple famously set up by Woz and Steve Jobs, uh, you know, came out of a homebrew computing culture in which you fixed and repaired things mm. uh, and adapted them and changed them. As Apple became much more mainstream, um, particularly when Steve Jobs came back and took charge of Apple again, mm. it kind of went from this open ecosystem to this much more kind of closed world of tethered devices as John yeah where we are now and you know as part of that um apple also really started to exercise an obsessive control over its products 
in terms of how they were made, uh, but also how consumers interacted with them. So they really restricted the ability physically uh, for consumers to tinker with their own products. Mm. So you kind of had these, you know, glued down, locked down products, mm. but also in terms of their software updates um, mm. and their life cycles of their products, they really tried to control that experience. And there was a great deal of concern that Apple was really engaging in a model of planned obsolescence. So, yeah, yeah. you know, their, their products would last for a little while and then you'd be kind of encouraged to buy the next model of the iPod mm -hmm. or the iPhone or the iPad. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would cycle through at a very fast rate. And, you know, is Apple that, has taken that... legal action to against independent repairers. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's come under a great deal of pressure during the right to repair debate. And mm -hmm. the contradictions have been pointed out between, you know, its original culture and its present culture. It's avowed commitments to sustainability mm -hmm. and its current business practices. So, and, you know, even was has kind of come out and said that, you know, really Apple's behaviour has been outrageous. Yeah. So Apple is now rethinking how it's going to deal with repair. It's made some baby steps mm. uh, in terms of repair strategies and, and allowing a bit more flexibility in terms of what it's going to allow. But iFixit and others have kind of pointed out that really uh, they've got a long way to go mm. uh, before uh, they really uh, in, fully embrace a repair culture. So this is such an important issue, isn't it? It almost feels like it's a a fight against uh, against the old linear culture and uh, mm. planned obsolescence and global monopoly power. So there's the environmental side because uh, at least up until now, as economies have grown, so our material footprint on the earth has grown with, uh, mm. with there's not been any decoupling as far mm. as what we've been digging out from under the ground and throwing away. Is yeah, concerned. well, we've then there's the, there's the other side as mm. well. If, if, if governments are increasingly concerned now about inflation and the cost of living, then uh, um, just going back to the car repair thing, it's so much cheaper mm. to get your car repaired locally than it is to go to the manufacturer. And, I, uh, and yeah, I, I think both your questions are really also kind of touching on um, matters that concern consumers in mm. terms of their experience in relation to cost and accessibility uh, but also around you know how durable a product is how sustainable a product is I, I mean gabby was really kind of um you know pointing towards some of the current debates about you know are there some labeling systems or indexes mm. that could help consumers make more sustainable choices you know, mm -hmm. France has introduced a repairability index and mm -hmm. labeling mm -hmm. system, and there's a lot of discussion about whether that should be extrapolated from and adopted much more broadly in the European Union. That was certainly an issue that kind of exercised the minds of the Productivity Commission in Australia, and they're kind of quite mm -hmm. interested mm -hmm. in, in that question. Um, so, you know, I, I think... Um, that will be kind of an important factor, you know, in order to kind of transform our economy. 
uh, we do need to kind of ensure that the consumer choices are also encouraging technology yeah. developers and um, how much of a problem yeah. is is planned obsolescence i mean we hear about it um mm. and you you kind of get the feeling sometimes that oh yeah my old old macbook is seems very very slow and nothing i can do to fix it and maybe it's apple controlling it from afar um there's this kind of perception that things are um that we are in in this kind of uh fast flowing current towards buy the new shiny thing is is that an, a real truth or is it just uh, a kind of myth well it was a point of great contention in the productivity commission inquiry into the right to repair in australia you know, the Productivity Commission were of the view that it wasn't a systematic problem. Mm -hmm. they, mm -hmm. they thought that, you know, sometimes companies made decisions to make more durable, more high quality products. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the environmental and sustainability groups, though, um, were rather kind of grumpy by that finding. They thought there was much more stronger evidence of planned obsolescence in yeah. the current economy. So yeah. it's a good question to ask, and I, I guess it was, you know, hotly debated uh, in the Productivity Commission in terms of the extent to which it was a, a problem. But likewise, there was also a debate about, you know, the extent to which e-waste was a problem in mm. terms of you know to what extent are we being very wasteful mm. there was some kind of conflicting opinions from stakeholders in terms of the the debate over the right to repair inquiry mm. which was kind of interesting in terms of um how uh the various problems were kind of viewed in terms of their intensity mm. so i guess in the end, it kind of does circle back to what people want or what they are conditioned to want, perhaps, is a better way better way of describing it. I mean, there's a very famous uh, sort of aphorism about, you know, uh, the buying um, a new pair of shoes, for example. If you have to buy the cheap shoes, you're going to have to buy them again in six months and, and pay, you know, pay, pay that amount of money over and over and over, whereas if you bought the expensive shoes, they might last you for 10 years. Hmm. Um, and well, well, I think companies are very nervous about the development of repairability indexes. Hmm. Uh, so uh, they are concerned that that will be a metric by which they're judged against. Yeah. Like, you know, how repairable is your computer hmm. may become a factor in terms of, you know, consumer choices. Yeah. But I, I think we, we need to have a system that kind of rewards those companies that make good choices mm. and penalises those companies that um, ignore these matters or engage in greenwashing. So, you know, yeah. sometimes there's been action under consumer law for breach of consumer rights um, or for misleading deceptive representations in terms of greenwashing. In Australia, the Productivity Commission said that there was a real imbalance between the power of consumers and the power of technology yeah. um, companies, yeah. and they thought that there should be the greater ability to bring collective actions, mm. um, that there needed to be you know, much more action by the regulator. 
but there needed to be some alternative dispute resolution mechanisms as well to yeah. deal with some of these issues. Um, so I think the Productivity Commission says that, you know, we need to further empower consumers. Mm. Um, you know, at the moment, they're not necessarily able to uh, make free and effective choices. Mm. And sometimes when a company has a very closed ecosystem, it's very difficult to opt out of that system. Uh, yeah. If, if you're There's using me, an Apple, Apple products product. fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that can be an issue. And as an intellectual property um, academic, I would also note that, you know, um, technology developers um, also insist that they have special exclusive rights in relation to their technologies. They mm. have copyright protection, they have designs protection, they have patent protection have trade secrets protection and they've been busy arguing that those intellectual property rights should trump consumer concerns or interests mm. so from the perspective of intellectual property i think it's really important that we create some broad defenses there for the uh, ability of consumers and repairers mm. to engage mm. in repair without fear of um, infringing the intellectual property rights of the um, technology developers. There's a whole different conversation there about uh, something else you've written about, I think, which is trade deals. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that that kind of bubbled away in the mm. Productivity Commission inquiry. You know, the Productivity Commission has been previously concerned that Australia keeps entering into trade agreements with higher and higher standards of intellectual property rights. Mm. which are not necessarily good for Australian consumers because we're mm. a net importer. Mm. Uh, they, they kind of noted that, you know, there, there is a debate about intellectual property exceptions mm. and how they might operate in relation to trade agreements. Uh, you know, some of the companies like Apple and John Deere might threaten to bring a kind of an investor state dispute settlement matter against Australia as well. Yeah, yeah. Really, there's also risks about Australia being left behind. So, really, we're already behind. Yeah. uh, Pushing (laughs) ahead with the right to repair. Um, You know, the European Union is really um, making rapid progress. Biden seems very kind of committed to action on the right to repair. Canada has Mm. a bill on the right to repair. Mm. I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, the Productivity Commission report is very good. But in some respects, it's a little bit cautious and circumspect and tentative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As if it was unsure about how policymakers would respond to it. Mm. Uh, a lot depends upon what the Australian, next Australian Parliament will do with these recommendations. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Um, we are. People we are won't be aware that we have an election coming up. Uh, We're days away from it. Yeah. yeah um, I, U.S. correspondents, lots of excitement. It's the last yeah. week of the Australian election. Mm. So we could have a differently composed Australian parliament. We could. Mm. And do you think having having more um, more influence from the Greens will, will help progress this issue? Well, the Greens have been the real driver of the right to repair issue. So Shane mm. Rattenbury, who's the Attorney General in the Australian Capital Territory, has mm. been a great champion of the right to repair. 
Yep. And he pressed other state and territory and federal leaders to help set up the Productivity Commission inquiry. Mm. Um, so he has certainly um, pushed along um, the agenda. Mm. The Australian Labor Party have some members who are interested in the right to repair in the context of motor vehicles, but there's mm. a few others who are more generally interested in the right to repair. Um, mm. The National Party have um, said that they will support yeah. a right to repair. Uh, the treasurer of the Liberals, Josh Frydenberg, did agree to, you know, the motor vehicle sharing information and the Productivity Commission inquiry. Uh, but it seems that his seat is under threat at the election. So I guess oh, we'll have to see whether or not he survives the election. I think the uh, right to repair will be okay without Frydenberg. Yeah, well, I, I, th I think you, you kind of ideally need a consensus for mm. um, such initiatives to push ahead. That's true. Um, I was being flippant, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's always um, sometimes useful to have cross-party consensus support Definitely. on an issue. Really I, I guess there, there, are, there are different models of the right to repair that could be implemented as well. There could be mm. a very strong version put forward mm. or a much kind of weaker regime put into place. Mm. So I, I guess I'm an advocate of a much stronger version of the right to repair. And for that to happen, I think, you know, we need committed legislators uh, who will, will take those ideas put forward by the Productivity Commission further and implement some effective models. Um, but that's always a challenge for law reform in terms yeah. of achieving effective um, laws. It would be so good for both consumers and the environment if, uh, if the uh, information was available and if, uh, if uh, legal barriers to... Um, uh, uh, a more general right to repair uh, were, were removed where that was possible. Um, this should be something that would be very popular with a great majority of uh, the population. And, well, and hopefully it, it would spark a new innovation culture in Australia that was focused mm -hmm. on a circular economy and sustainable mm -hmm. development. Seems to me that, you know, we're lagging behind many other jurisdictions in that space. Mm -hmm. We could do much more in terms of uh, investing research and development into sustainable innovation. So, yeah, yeah. you know, Australia also needs to kind of think about some of the opportunities in this space. And some of those mm. are economic opportunities in terms of realising the sustainable development goal on responsible production and consumption. Mm. Um, there's been a bit of activity in the um, New South Wales with the setting up of a circular network or economy. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some other state governments are thinking about some of those issues, but I think Australia really needs to do much more concerted work in that space. I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, we, we have, uh, we've nearly run out of our half hour time slot, yeah. but um, about how do we make repair culture cool again? I mean, I know there's, there's maker spaces and there's, um, repair cafes and things and it's a lot of fun and uh, it, it has its own sort of subculture of people that are really really keen and and um, keen to pass on their skills but how do we how do we make that into a more mainstream because it seems to me that 
main in the mainstream people are quite happy to throw an old fridge out and get a new one because it looks nicer and it's got a fancy ice dispenser or something and it's not repair culture isn't embraced really when i do talks on the right to repair i always like to end up with a with a little bit of science fiction about um, future possibilities and i always point out that even in a galaxy far far away the right to repair is a critical issue so you know in star wars the rebel alliance and the resistance had to rely on tinkering and repair and fixing stuff to beat the big evil empire uh, and and the first order. So well, you know, yes. I, I think repair <laughs> repair is is very useful in a wide range of uh, different uh, contexts. Um, and I think repair mm. has always been cool, uh, mm. but I think it could be cool again. Yeah, that would Absolutely. be great. Um, that's, that's, fixing that's cars a great place is, to finish. Yeah. <laughs> fixing cars is cool. Uh, mending clothes is cool. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know about repairing iPhones, but let's make that cool again. Repairing X-Wing is also cool. Millennium yeah. Falcon. Yeah. 100%. Well, thank you. Thanks very much, Matthew, for that fascinating discussion. And there's two things I'd like to do before we finish. Yeah. First of all, I would like to say, if she is watching at this stage, I'd like to send a hello and send my love to a great friend of mine called Maya Rimmer, who also happens to be Matthew's aunt, I think, in the yeah. UK. Yeah. And uh, secondly, I would like to let everybody know that we have our last show in this series next week. And our the last guest of our second series is going to be the same person who was the first guest of the first series who uh, everybody in the modern money community knows, Fad El Kabu, who yes. is uh, an important uh, campaigner as far as sustainability is concerned, and one of the leading forces behind the uh, uh, campaign for an anti-fossil fuels proliferation treaty, amongst other things, uh, president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, uh, mm -hmm. one of the world's leading modern monetary theory economists, and we're particularly going to talk to Fadel, amongst other things, about uh, monetary sovereignty in developing countries, and we'll touch on the recent economic crisis in Sri Lanka as well. Yes. Yeah. So, so hope thanks you can join us next week. And thanks yeah. very much again, thanks Matthew. It's been great questions. to talk to you. Thanks for your questions you. and comments. And if you're interested cool. in the right to repair, the Productivity Commission report is free and open access and you can download us and you can expand and enlarge your own knowledge about the topic yes and google i fix it as well fascinating stuff thanks very much thanks Matthew. thanks Stephen. Cheers. bye everybody bye